I, I just hope that people kind of think about that. Like that is that, you know, we call ourselves a country of immigrants and refugees and this administration will have brought it to a complete and utter halt. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Maria Inajosa is a trailblazing Emmy award-winning journalist who has been among the first Latina reporters at PBS, CBS, CNN, and NPR. She hosts the national radio show Latino USA and founded Futuro Media, a nonprofit newsroom which focuses on news from a POC perspective. Her new book is Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America. She tells her own story as a journalist and looks at the immigration and human rights crisis on our borders. Maria Inahosa, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm so happy to be in Vermont, virtually. <laughs> We're happy to have you here. Your book, Once I Was You, A Memoir of Love and Hate in a Torn America, is a wonderful read, beautifully written. Thank you. But I want to start with that title, because uh, no matter how many pages I went, I kept being drawn back to um, the power of that. That is really the heart of your story. So explain what you mean by <clears throat> Once I Was You. When you asked me this question, I just kind of went back to the conceptualness of this. And it actually was my muse and, and dear friend, Sandra Cisneros, when I was doing an interview with her, or well, the first time I met her, oh my God, she was such a star. And I was a new reporter at NPR. And I was doing a story about multiculturalism and how freaked out everybody was that multiculturalism was a thing and it was going to have to be taught in schools. And, you know, oh my God, white America, what a surprise was uh, having a moment. And I asked Sandra Cisneros, what is your definition of multiculturalism? And she said, multiculturalism means being able to see yourself in the person most unlike you. And that changed everything for me. I was like, okay, that's my definition now, forever. Hmm. And so I've been preaching this for a while, like see yourself in the person most unlike you. It turns out that in the writing of the introduction, which came after I had pretty much finished the book, that's when um, I have this recollection of a moment, again, Sandra Cisneros, the writer, said to me, don't always write about what you remember, but write about the things that you wish you could forget, the things that you've forgotten, you're trying to forget. Mm -hmm. And so I, I write about this encounter with a little girl in the airport in McAllen, Texas, on the border. It turns out she's one of these, she's one of the children who this president has said is, you know, coming here with some kind of, I don't know, agenda you know, who knows if she was on a caravan, oh my God, you know, oh, these children are going to take over the United States. It's like, wow, what? Here I am witnessing these children. And you write this as a letter to her, which is part well, of what's so powerful. Yeah, because I'm really hoping beyond hope that she'll read this book. I mean, the book exists in Spanish. In Spanish, it's called Una Vez Fui Tu. And I'm really hoping that at some point in her life, she gets a hold of this book and that she reads it and that she gets in touch, you know, because she's not invisible to me because what ends up happening in the writing of this book is that I realize <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know it when I was started out writing the book, but well, yeah, I could have been one of those kids, not exactly that child. I, you know, but, but 
the story develops as I'm writing this book that I realized, no, I, I actually was almost taken from my mother when I arrived to this country as a legal uh, American, as a legal U.S. immigrant with a green card, but I was almost taken. So this girl who you meet in an airport in McAllen, Texas, down by the Mexican border, you talk about locking eyes with her. What did you see in her eyes? Well, the reason why I end up locking eyes with her is because I, before the pandemic, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in airports, <laughs> too much time in airports. And so I know airport body language. Little kids in airports are always jumping around, bopping around. They're always smiling. They're doing something. And this little girl was doing nothing. And that's what caught me. And then I was like, wait, she's Latina? Who is she with? And then I just pulled back, right? I did the, the wide, wide angle view. And I was like, oh, my God. She's one of, like, what? What is this? Almost a dozen kids here? What's going on here? And then I go and I sit next to her because I'm a journalist. I'm curious. I'm also a mother. And I felt some pain for her. And that's when I just started talking to her. And, and then in the end, you know, the, these children are... Well, she confirmed that she had been held in a very, very big place. And at that point, we understood that that very, very big place um, in McAllen was the uh, Walmart that had been transformed. These children have been terrorized to respond to authorities. So the second, the so-called chaperones, or are they kidnappers and traffickers, actually, stood up. They all, all the kids stood up and got into formation. I mean, there was a child as little as maybe five years old. And, uh, and then they got on a United Airlines flight to Houston. United Airlines flight attendants knew what's happening. The pilots know what's happening. The airlines know what's happening. What is this? What is this trafficking of children? The definition of trafficking, if you speak to it, there have to be several things that have to occur for a person to be trafficked. You don't have access to your identification, your passport you are told not to speak to anyone. You don't know who is holding you and you don't know where you're going. These children are being trafficked. So um, as a journalist, it was my moment to, to engage and to see again with my very eyes. And I just never expected that that would be the story that I would tell to start my book. But it is a message because in the end, I saw myself in this little girl. I mean, not so much even as an immigrant, but as a little girl who's afraid and I'm like a mom. I mean, I wanted to hug her, but I, I mean that, I, oof, if I had tried to touch her, you know, who knows, they might've called the police on me. Um, and I guess rightly so, right? Because you don't want anybody hugging and touching these children because they're, they're, they're with strangers. Anyway, it was a very, very sad moment. And unfortunately that, that reality, that scene has been replayed in airports across the country. Um, I don't know what is happening with the transporting of these children now because Stephen Miller's dream has come true and Donald Trump's as well. They have shut down the border. There is no one coming in. No refugees, no immigrants. Um, they got their dream. They got their wish. And, um, and if they're voted into office again, there will be no refugees or immigrants allowed in for who knows how long. And so... I just hope that people kind of think about that. Like that is that, you know, we call ourselves a country of immigrants and refugees. And this 
administration will have brought it to a complete and utter halt. The United States of America. You got to wrap your heads around that. That's, that's, that's history. That's history. That's a historical proposition of your raison d'etre. Dead. Because of essentially two, three, four, five, six white guys. Okay. Thank you. Yesterday, this very image, uh, the, the imagery of closing the borders was driven home to me. I was driving by a Canadian border post. Uh, well, it was the American port of entry at the Canadian border. And it was, it was like a shuttered, you know, fast food place. There was nothing happening, nothing coming through. Because in this case, we are the pariahs. We are the ones who are not right. wanted. Right. Um, so it is remarkable to think that the world we may think, and Stephen Miller may put out that we've shut out the world, but the world has shut us out. Um, Which is why, you know, the the notion of once I was you, it is really a, a beckoning and a reckoning with my country. Like, please see myself in you. I mean, I was not born in this country, right? And so now this administration, that's the litmus test. By the way, this administration did not start it. These laws, these laws that are used now to deport all of these people who are essentially not criminals at all. Um, these laws were signed into law by Bill Clinton, who actively supported them. He started the building of the wall, Bill Clinton. Um, they were uh, used after 9-11 to full effect by George W. Bush. And then they went on steroids under Barack Obama who was labeled, as you know, the deporter in chief, even though those numbers are a little bit, there's a whole complication with the numbers, but whatever it is, he did as a constitutional lawyer and scholar know that he was denying people's basic due process because of one thing only, that being that they were not born in the United States. And then it goes on to, let's just take this policy and put it all into hate, torture, psychological torture, concentration camps, forced sterilization, experimenting on people's bodies, you know, raping and sexually assaulting women, teenagers, men, of course, children, please. If you're, maybe I should have given people a trigger warning, but this is happening today. So explain, and I think people do, uh, our, our his sense of history is famously short in this country. And what you're referring to, Obama, who deported 2 million people in his time as president, um, which was more than any of his predecessors combined. How do you reckon with that? How does Obama differ than Trump when it comes to immigration? Well, I think Trump really, he's got, I mean, if you understand, I, I, I just read Mary L. Trump's book. And so if you understand that this man really, like his intention is based on, you know, when you're raised by a psychopath, then your intention is really to just destroy and hate. Like that's what moves you. So I think the difference under Donald Trump is that it was just like, hell yes, let's do our entire campaign based on hatred of, hello, what did he say? It's not what I said. What did he say when he came down his golden staircase? Keep the Mexicans out. They're bad people. He said it. So he began his entire campaign with what we know is hate speech 
by the way, I was told to calm down, you know, hey, you're just taking it a little bit personally. I mean, this is just politics. Barack Obama was not motivated by that kind of hatred. But Barack Obama, sadly, I, I mean, he was motivated by the opposite of what he ran on. He ran on change. And in the case of immigration, he was like, yeah, no, nope, not here. Not so much. Not, not change here. And what a miscalculation. Everything, everything would, have, would be different now if Barack Obama had pushed through massive immigration reform, which he could have. He had the House and Senate. He could have. He didn't. Um, and therefore, this intensified anti-immigrant hatred of the other, which he then, you know, fed the fire because he was saying, I'm, I'm just rounding up those criminals. No, you aren't. You're rounding up mothers and fathers who committed fraud because they're undocumented and they gave a fake social security number. And now you're calling them a criminal. So that's, that's how, that, that's the difference. And I guess what the, I'll just end by saying, you know, please Barack Obama speak to me. Um, and, and, and take the moment to apologize. We all, I'm, I'm apologizing for stuff all the time. He, he needs to apologize and own this, frankly, for, for, the, for the Democratic Party. Not, not for, but, but for the, Dem that's what he needs to do if he really wants to save the, the party in the future. Why is immigration and, uh, you know, the turning away of immigrants, the gift that keeps on giving for all politicians of all right. parties, right. the honey that attracts yep. them, it is irresistible. Yep. Why? It's, I'm sorry, it's based on white supremacy. Why, um, do, you, why do you apologize for saying well, that? Well, because I, you think it's fun to say that, especially to a white man? No, it brings me no joy. I hate that. On the other hand, I'm glad, you know, before a decade ago, I'd have to say, well, it's white supremacy. And people would be like, oh, you know, I'd have to say it under my breath. Well, no, we have to talk about it. So, so <clears throat> part of what I do with the book, Once I Was You, is I, I, I reframe American history, right? Um, and, and so you, you don't realize that actually the first people to arrive here were Spaniards. The first language that was spoken here, besides indigenous languages, of which there were many, was uh, Spanish in St. Augustine, Florida. The second settlement was in Santa Fe. And then, and then came the pilgrims. If you're an indigenous person, you would say to the pilgrims, who gave you right? Who gave you papers? Who gave you permission, illegal alien? We don't like to say that. That's a slur in my book. I don't use it, but I'm using it for effect. And so... So then what we have to realize is that, you know, the original sin is slavery, but the first sin was genocide. And that anti-immigrant hatred sits on top of the shoulders of anti-indigenous hatred, anti-black hatred, anti-immigrant. Remember, half of the United States was Mexico. So we're not talking about that, right? But after 1848, when the United States takes basically half of what Mexico was, <clears throat> um, you know, the first people who are excluded by law, excluded by law, are Chinese, Asian women. The Chinese Exclusion Act comes later, just a few years later, 1882, I think. But it's women. 
And we're told, <laughs> you know this, I know you know this because we all read it in our history. Oh, well, you know, the reason why Chinese women were excluded was because they were prostitutes. No, they weren't. <laughs> That's a white man who's writing that story. No, you were excluding Asian women because of white supremacy, because sadly, the creator of Stanford University, Leland Stanford, he was all about, hey, no, 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 not these people. It's a big reckoning with Stanford, right? So yeah, we have to talk about white supremacy and why, and that's where my bigger question is, why? Why does white supremacy exist? I mean, because it's all about um, feeling insecure. And I'm just like, yo, listen, immigrants, <clears throat> whatever our background, immigrants, Latinos and Latinas, we don't want to take anything from you. What do you think we want to come to Vermont and just like take all the beautiful white picket fences and all your cows and no, <laughs> we want to hang out with you. We want to party with you. We want to be your neighbors. We want to live in that house with the white picket fence and fix our garden and, and, and speak to you in English and have our kids go to public school. And we want to, we want to do that. We want to become your lovers. We want to become your friends and your employees and your employers. But this narrative that we're coming to take no, 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 no. In all of my years of, um, of reporting on you know, immigrants, it's like I've never heard one saying, oh, no, I'm going to come and I'm going to take my stuff. It's like, no, immigrants don't talk that way. Tell, tell us a little bit about your journey to journalism uh, and uh, how your background both informed your perspective and threw up walls in front of you. Well, I wasn't going to become a journalist because when I was growing up, there were no Latina journalists or Latino journalists. So I, I was like, well, I really love this stuff, but I, I mean, I can't do this. There's nobody, nobody who looks like me, sounds like me, um, has ever even been told a story about people like me. So I, I kind of, I mean, what ends up happening is I understand uh, I, I have privilege. My father, uh, may he rest in peace, is a medical doctor dedicated to research and helps to create the cochlear implant based at the University of Chicago. And um, I go to the University of Chicago High School, and that leads me to Barnard, and that leads me to Columbia University College Radio, WKCR, hey, hey. And, um, and then I'm ready to graduate, and... I'm like, yeah, apply for an internship at NPR? No, I could never get it. <clears throat> and this is where beautiful allyship happens because a white woman says to me, you got to, what do you mean? You have to apply. Um, and so I did. And that's how I end up as the first Latina at NPR, the first Latina at CNN, the first Latina at PBS, the first Latina to run a nonprofit independent newsroom. Um, what I understand though is privilege. And privilege means I have responsibility to, to do this. I might be afraid to be the first one scared. It's not comfortable. But I'm here and, and I have the privilege to use this power. Um, I have the responsibility, rather, to use this privilege and do something with it. That, that's my journey into... And then just <clears throat> like a very famous person who I actually used to work for. I think I told you this when we met. Amy Goodman. You know, I basically said, you know what I can do? I think I can do this on my own. I think I can be independent. I think there's a tradition of journalists of conscience who do this independently, Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, etc. I think I can do this. And then that's why I create Futuro Media. 
Talk about the the whiteness of the media. What's missing? How does it skew how we understand the world? And how has it come back to bite you? You've, you've been told you have an agenda. So maybe you can confess to us here uh, what your agenda is. Um, yeah, there was a moment when my white male editor, a middle-aged guy from Ohio, said to me, who was here in New York, he was like, oh, come on, Maria, we all know about your agenda. And I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, I was just like, Gigi. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, we all know about your Latino agenda. And I said, my Latino agenda? I said, happily that day I was on my toes because I said, well, that must mean that you have a white male agenda. He said, no, 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 it's not the same thing. I said, it is the same thing. <laughs> I don't have an agenda. I'm telling stories about a community that, hello, is the fastest growing demographic in the United States, along with Asians. Do you care? So we all suffer as a result. Imagine, because white men are raised in this country, they've been reading the same history books, so they buy into this narrative that immigrants are scary to be controlled, that there's not enough space, that refugees have, you know, all of these bad intentions. And so then when they go to run newspapers or work at public radio stations or run local television channels, they're just bringing that same thing that they were raised with. That's why, you know, racism, internalized racism, you know, you don't even know what you're carrying, right? We have to, this is a moment to really be looking at that. But then you're running the newsrooms. And you're making decisions about headlines and, and you're like, oh, well, but those are just illegals. I mean, you know, I mean, they're, those are just illegals. Who cares about them? Oh, well, what does it matter? I mean, they're just illegals. Hence why I don't use the term illegal to refer to a human being. Mm. Because then that's what happens. You're like, oh, well, we don't have to report about them. I mean, they're just illegals. I mean, they're not really... I mean, they don't have any rights, right? I mean, they're, they're, not, they're like barely people, right? I mean, they should be happy that we're putting, this is what, what Republicans and actually the people who work <clears throat> in these detention facilities, you, you should be happy that you're here. You have a roof over your head, a bathroom to use, you know, three bologna sandwiches a day. You should be happy. No. So um, if, 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 if we don't have members of the news media across the board who get this, we're all suffering. Now, imagine this. Imagine if all of the mainstream news for the last 50 years actually was writing about immigrants with headlines like, wow, immigration is increasing and it's the best thing that could happen to the United States. Next headline. Wow, immigrants are so cool. They eat all kinds of fantastic food. Let's get more of them. Or, wow, immigrants are so sweet and so nice. I want to fall in love with them. Or, wow, immigrants have the coolest customs and food. This is really cool. Let's bring even more. There's a whole lot of space here. Let's bring more. Oh my God, they prop up our economy. Oh my God. That's not what you hear about immigrants. It is a narrative. And the book, Once I Was You, which is, yes, a very intimate story, but it is also to give you that information so that you can break down that narrative and be active in creating a new one. Not a new one, but, but one for this moment, which we desperately need. So 
In talking about this moment, uh, this week, of course, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies, uh, and Trump has made it clear that he is going to ram through uh, a, ju- a third justice on his watch. Looks like he'll probably get away with it since most of the Republican senators have folded. We're having these almost biblical or apocalyptic climate crisis events in uh, with the wildfires and the hurricanes. Uh, and we're having this uprising around racial justice. What gives you hope? What keeps you from just losing it as the world <laughs> seems to be uh, just in a constant state of churn. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm always on the verge of losing it because this is for real. This is not a joke. This is not authoritarianism light. This is not something's going to happen, but everything's going to be okay in the end. Ra rah, sis, boom, bah, the USA. This is really challenging times. But, but you know what? <laughs> the election of the year 2000, when when we were watching the Supreme Court decide an election. We're going to be back there again. And you're right, this is a very, very scary time. Um, Donald Trump, again, because of his destructive tendencies, has destroyed everything in terms of uh, beliefs in any kind of institutions. And so we have all participated, not participated, but now are recipients of this. And we have to actively you know, get those voices out of our head. I, I think about Dolores Huerta, you know, who created Si Se Puede, Yes We Can, United Farm Workers, um, who always talks about people power. And there is one thing that we have witnessed, which is pretty extraordinary because I, like you, you know, saw this as a child during the late 60s and 70s. Um, people taking to the streets, people being out there, awake Um, in ways that we haven't seen for many years. But what gives me hope is, I mean, where am I going? Where am I going? Am I moving to Canada? Mm, Canada, not not so perfect. France, uh, Italy, I mean, how would I do that, right? I'm going to be an undocumented person there. By moving back to Mexico, to the Dominican Republic. So then it's like, wait a second, I'm a citizen here. My kids were born here. They're New Yorkers. Yeah, they're Latinos, son and daughter of immigrants, but they're New Yorkers. They love this place. They're not going. So what gives me hope is ancestral connections to, to resisting and living through horrible things. You know, nature gives me hope. My ancestors give me hope. Um, Young people give me her hope. Birds. <laughs> I'm a big birder. Um, <laughs> um, and I, I meditate every day and I box every day. I'm a boxer. And um, I try to focus on gratitude. Uh, this, this, this horror that we are living through specifically with immigrants, this was not you know, created in a week or two years or three. This is a long haul to deconstruct this, and I need people in for the long haul to deconstruct this. And that is not a party thing. It is simply a human thing. Is this, is this how the United States wants to be treating the most vulnerable people on its land? And everyone has to answer that question. I know it's not, not the way I want it to be. So I'm going to stay in gratitude and hope and push through because we all got to push through. This is what it looks like. We got to push through.
Okay. Well, Maria Hinojosa, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, Vermont, we love you. Can't wait to get back up there. It's been a long time, but love you, Vermont. And thank you for supporting Once I Was You. I really appreciate it. And great conversation. Maria Hinojosa is an Emmy Award-winning journalist, host of Latino USA, and author of the new memoir, Once I Was You. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.